Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Hey, welcome back this week to our episode of the Scent Life podcast as we really get into a special uh, series, Keelan, about uh, about being sent, but not being sent by ourselves, uh, but being sent together. Yeah, so if you guys joined us for last week, and I hope you did, if you haven't, run back and listen to that one because it sets up the foundation for what we're going to be doing, and we focused on this issue, so these should be a little shorter for you anyways. Uh, what we're wanting to do right now is unpack this idea of cooperating mm-hmm. for the sake of the gospel. If we, as a seminary, are thinking through between now and the upcoming SBC annual meeting, what does it look like for us to go together? Right. Then cooperation, of course, is a key piece of that, Scott. So what we need to do is think through maybe the why on yeah. that. Yeah. You know, in, in some of convention, frequent phrase that you hear is we can do more together than we can do apart. That's true. It is. Right? I mean, sure. if, you, if you and I were outside and we needed to pick up something heavy and I couldn't pick it up by myself, and I said, hey, Keelan, come over here and help me pick it up, you're not a big, strong man, but we could do more together. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thanks for throwing uh, me under the bus. We can do more together than we could do apart. And so there's some truth to that statement, right? But when I hear that in our conversations about the SBC, I think sometimes it leads us to say, yeah, but is that the only reason we cooperate together? Is there just this, well, I think maybe two people can do more than one, and so three people could do more than two, and so 50,000 can do more than 25,000, so maybe we ought to just do this together. Is that really the only reason that we do it? And perhaps worse than that, um, we do go through seasons where it is difficult to cooperate together, right? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) For for various reasons, right? It could be political reasons. It could be geographic reasons. It could be... Uh, any type of opinions that someone has, and some may say, I'm not sure it's easier. Uh, I'm not sure it's better to do it together than to do it separately. So you got to give me more than just this, you know, you ought to feel guilty about not doing it because you can do more together. Is there a real um, a foundational reason for, for going together? I think the Southern Baptist Convention is founded on this notion, right? It's founded on the notion not just that it's practically beneficial, but it's theologically and biblically uh, right to do things together. Yeah, it is phenomenal to me as you sit back and you kind of look at some of the conversation that we see on social media about cooperation. I think you're I think you're on to something with the way you're talking about this one. So is it difficult? Sure. Yeah, there, there are a number of points where it's difficult. And if we're not careful, if pragmatism is our only reason for approaching this issue, when it gets difficult, I'm going to want to pull my hands out of the pot. Right. I don't want to be a part of that cooperation anymore because the only reason I'm doing it is pragmatism. Right. But if you you look at most of the common language about why mm-hmm. we as a Southern Baptist Convention do what we do, or when you start seeing arguments for, for what it means to be a part of it, they almost always tend to run to this multiplier effect in workload right. or the financial multiplier effect that comes from being cooperative. And so that reason is, sure, it's there. No question. Absolutely, it's there. You, we pointed that out some in the last 
last episodes. But what we want to do today is challenge everybody to realize if your only reason is pragmatism. When cooperation gets hard, you don't want to cooperate anymore. Right. And so maybe we've got to look at this issue a little deeper than the conversation normally goes. And what we're going to claim today is that we think you can actually make a biblical case for why cooperation isn't just pragmatic, but is also a beautiful thing that the church can do from kind of a theological perspective. Yeah, it's necessary, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's exactly right. When we think about think about cooperation, um, the place that—I think there are two places we need to go when we think about the, the biblical necessity for cooperation. One— is we go to um, God and his mission. So this overarching theological theme of why we cooperate, because of God and his mission. The second is because of God and his mission, we have a biblical narrative that just describes how missions started and how missions worked itself out. And we see in that narrative uh, that they are doing this thing together. So both of these, I think, form our theological and biblical structures, which make cooperation going together the norm, not the exception. I make the claim, and it's often not received well, that the person who seeks to do missions independently, so an independent church, the burden of proof is on them to show why they're not following the biblical pattern. It's not on those of us who cooperate to show why we're not following the biblical pattern. That's a bit of a flip of the script there, isn't it? Has been. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by it, though. I think that's a right way to look at it. So what we're going to what we want to do then, I guess, is unpack that idea. So the burden of proof, it actually lies on the people that don't want to cooperate, not the ones who do, because from a biblical perspective, it seems that the scriptures would indicate that the church, the local churches, there's a necessity uh, to cooperation, to be doing it the way that the Bible describes the mission of the church. That's exactly right. So first of all, so let's take this theological motif. So what 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 do we see the Bible teaching? There are several key themes throughout the Bible. One is that there is one God. The Bible is uh, is unapologetically monotheistic. That is that we worship one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this one God is the creator of the universe. This one God is the one who created man, uh, Adam and Eve. It's this one God who we offended, this one God who we are made right with through the sending of his son Jesus into the world. So this is there's one God. All that we do in this world is in worship or rebellion against this one God. Now, this one God, if you read through the Bible, has a mission. What is his mission? The mission is laid out in, in Genesis 3 where after the fall, he makes this promise to the serpent that he's going to send a savior who will have his heel bruised, but he'll crush the head of the serpent. So in the very beginning, there's this promise that God has a mission. That mission is to destroy sin, its impact, uh, and to, 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 to crush evil in this world. As we follow that story through, God's mission is, uh, as this happens, is the establishment of a people for himself. We see in Genesis chapter right. 12 uh, that God calls Abram to himself, says, hey, I want you to go, go to this land. As you go, uh, you're going to be a people who are going to be innumerable. The families of the earth are going to be blessed by you. There's this people of God. Throughout the entire rest of the, the Old Testament, there's this story of God calling to himself, building himself a people who are a witness about his glory, 
his purposes to the nations, to the rest of the world. Now, if you obviously if you read through the Old Testament, you follow the pattern that they didn't always do a great job. No doubt. In fact, the the prophets are writing to say you're not doing God's mission, whether it's uh, it, whether it's rebelling against the law, whether it's treating the outsider poorly, if it's living in an immoral way, if it's worshiping wrongly. All of this really can revolve around this thing that there's one God with one mission, and you're not following His mission. But God's mission includes the building of a people, right? In the New Testament, this mission doesn't stop in the sending of Jesus. Jesus comes in order to actualize this mission, and that is he, the Son, comes into the world. He lives a sinless life. He dies on the cross, the substitutionary uh, death uh, for, for sinners, and then he raises from the dead. And in raising from the dead, he says to his followers, keep doing the mission. Right. right. The Great Commission yeah. is simply a reaffirmation of what we see in the Old Testament, which is the mission of God. It connects directly this, we're about to get some nerd zone here. Maybe if we had like a siren in the background, right? But (laughs) the Great Commission connects directly to Daniel chapter 7, where uh, there's this, Daniel has this vision of one like the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days, who says, who gives this, this, this figure, all authority will be given to you. And all the nations will worship you. Well, when Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 28, what does he say at the very beginning? All authority has been given to me. Has been given to me. And if we read that, it sounds like such a weird sentence because you think, well, wait a minute. Jesus was God. And if he was God, he always had all authority. So why in the word would he say right here after the resurrection, all authority has been given to me? I think that he does that because there's this direct connection showing what I'm about to say to you is in line with everything that has happened up to this point. All of God's mission. So right. one God, one mission, the establishment of a people who are accomplishing, who've been charged with the mission of God. And then at the Great Commission, Jesus says, now you go make disciples of all nations. And then he connects that to the church, baptizing them right. in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So who is this one people? It is the church. So we have one God with one mission. The mission is to establish a people for himself. This people is the church. Uh, it's not just this universal church, though it is that, but the universal church then has is, is manifested in local assemblies who gather together. So my church in Raleigh, your church in Wake Forest, someone else's church in Durham are, are local assemblies, local churches who have who're still part of this one mission and this one God. If it's one mission and one God, our churches are the local manifestations of that. We don't own it by ourselves. We're not independent, right? We're part of God's mission and God's movement in the world. Therefore, working together is just doing what we've always been supposed to do from the beginning. Hey, Southeastern family, this May we want to ask you to consider supporting Southeastern by praying, sending, and giving. We want to ask you to remember these three dates. On May 13th, we will celebrate graduation on our campus. Please pray for the 273 new Southeastern graduates as they go well-equipped to wherever God calls them. Sunday, May 15th is Seminary Sunday on the SBC calendar. Please take this opportunity to share Southeastern with others and to recommend us to any men and women seeking to pursue theological education. Finally, on May 19th, we will recognize our charter date with a day of giving. 
Generous donors have provided a $25,000 matching gift challenge for this day. Please consider giving to support our students and remember that every dollar given is one less dollar a student will need to pay in tuition. So this may join us in our mission to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission by praying for our graduates, sending students to be equipped, and by giving. Because you pray, send, and give, we are going. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so when we get to that point, that's kind of where it starts to land on the ground for the conversation we're having right now, right? So the whole idea builds to this understanding. I mean, you'll hear people talk about how the church is kind of an outpost of God's mission. Right. Uh, that's that's helpful language, I think, when we understand that correctly. It's not the only outpost of his mission, right. though. And there's this understanding that we're all a part of this one people of God with this one mission, and we're all in it's decentralized, mm-hmm. but it's not different. That's exactly And right. if we're not careful, we want to run in a lane by ourselves on this one. And that's not how it was ever designed at all. And you see that from a, a clear unpacking of the mission of God as it walks through Scripture and the role that the local church plays, the local assembly plays, as part of that bigger whole. That's right. You know, people often say, hey, man, what's the mission of your church? My church's mission is this and this. And I want to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Man, your church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. Absolutely. You know, God's mission has a church, and and it's the accomplishment of God's mission to have a people in this world who worship him, who follow him, and who extend his mission to those who haven't heard. So when Jesus in the Great Commission says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore where the footprint of God's people has not expanded, go there and make disciples of me, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so they then become part of this mission of God. So so one God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, where the church goes and baptizes, we baptize into relationship with this one God, so that this now, this local assembly now, belongs to his mission. In that case, then, participation together, going together, is the assumed movement of the Bible. We can't do it any other way and still be participating with our God in his mission. Yeah, so the way you just phrased that, I I got a bit of a reputation when I was working with churches in particular, trying to help them think through uh, change management and creating mission culture and some of those kind of things, and all the church planters that I'm working with in right. the States, man. It's become really common to talk about, oh, i got to come up with a mission statement for my church, right? right. And I, I don't want to necessarily disparage the whole enterprise of thinking through the vision of your church, but I very frequently found myself saying over and over again, your church doesn't have to come up with its mission, folks. Like, that's not how it works. And furthermore, yours is not different from every other church that's ever existed since Christ. Like, it's just not different. We've been given Mm -hmm. a mission. We don't create our mission. And if we can re-understand that concept— well, if your mission as a church is exactly the same as my mission as a church, we're doing the same thing. We're part of a bigger whole. Then, as you said, the position of cooperation is the assumed position. It doesn't have to be proven. Right. That we don't have to make a case for that one. That's right. the assumed stance. Right. Right. Yeah. The the, the 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 church is both the originator and the result of the mission. Exactly. Right. Why do we have church? Because we have a mission. What's the responsibility of the church? To do the mission. 
And we see this unpacked in the narrative of the of the New Testament as well. So again, when I when I, when I said earlier that the responsibility uh, of the burden of proof for independence when it comes to missions lays on those who've chosen to step outside of the trajectory of the Bible, who've chosen not to cooperate, not to participate together in mission. Why? The whole trajectory of the New Testament. Let's very quickly we can do a if we go to a summary of the book of Acts, for example, which is our kind of original missionary handbook. Right. Uh, so what what does what does God want us to know about the mission of the church? It's what he shows us in the Bible. Now, why do we focus on Paul? Well, there's a practical reason. Luke was the writer of the book of Acts. Luke was with Paul. We see that. But in a spiritual sense, why do we focus on Paul and his missions? Because God inspired the Bible. So we would be pretty rebellious and neglectful to not look at what God inspired and say, this is the way that God intends for us to think about missions. So if we just took, again, a very brief overview of Paul's mission, what does it look like? It looks like a man named Barnabas being sent from the church in Jerusalem to a church in Antioch as a missionary. So so something happens in Antioch. All of a sudden, these people start getting saved. The church in Jerusalem says, whoa, what's happening over here? The only way to know what's happening in Antioch is not through Twitter, not through email, not through you know some news account, but we got to get somebody over there. So they send Barnabas to Antioch. When Barnabas gets there, what does it say? It says he encouraged them. It says that he taught, and he says that their numbers expanded. So Barnabas is with them sharing the gospel. So now in the New Testament, we have these two uh, two uh, mother churches, if you would. We have the mother church in Jerusalem, and then you have this other church in Antioch. What does Barnabas do in Antioch? Well, eventually he thinks, I need more help. And so working with the leadership of the in Antioch, he reaches out to Saul or to Paul. Hey, we need you to come help us as well. So Paul then comes to Antioch. Paul's working with this church in Antioch. Um, Part of the ministry in the church in Antioch is they get word that the church in Jerusalem needs help. Now, this is a fascinating idea, right? You've got the big mega mother church in Jerusalem who sends the missionary. And now this so-called daughter church, if you would, in Antioch gets word that the, the mother church needs help. What do they do? Well, they send Paul back with some money and some missionary support. He goes all the way back to Jerusalem to help that church. So now what's happening? These churches are working together right? They're, they're, they're participating together. What happens after that? Well, the, the, the story seems to say that, that, uh, uh, that there's this moment in Acts chapter 13, the people are praying together in Antioch. What should we do? Hey, we're going to send out, this, the Holy Spirit says, send out from you Paul and Barnabas. Now remember, Paul and Barnabas weren't missionaries from Antioch. Barnabas belonged to Jerusalem if you were going right. to own this thing. His sending church, if you would, would yeah. been the church in Jerusalem. But then the, the church in Antioch hears from the Spirit, send out Paul and Barnabas on the mission. So they, so the, you know, in, in Acts chapter 13, they lay hands on them, they send them out. Uh, then it says being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas go on their missionary journeys. Well, man, as they're traveling around planting churches, uh, sharing the gospel, this is an extension of the work. And if you read through the New Testament, you find regularly, first, that Paul is always coming back to Antioch. Yep. So, in other words, Paul viewed Antioch as his sending church. Yes. Even after he and Barnabas broke up, we could talk about that at a different time, even after they broke up, Paul still views Antioch as this church. So he's always looping back to Antioch. He's establishing leaders from these churches. 
and as he's establishing leaders in these churches, they're all sending finances back to Jerusalem. Let's help the people who are struggling. So you've got this, this care gift that's going back. All of this is this network of churches in the New Testament. These new churches participate in the mission. They send money. The whole book of Philippians, thanks yep. for sending money to help support my mission. Uh, they send people. Every time you're reading in the New Testament, Paul is regularly working with new missionaries that were sent out by these other churches to go on mission. Uh, they're sending their prayers. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, thanks for praying for me. My mission requires you to pray for me so that I can be successful. What's happening, man? All of this is some way of participating together. All of these New Testament local churches understand we're in this thing together as we go together for making Jesus' name known in these new and unreached places. Yeah, when you look through the scriptures, particularly Acts and the letters, right? If you, if you look at it with an eye toward this concept of cooperation, if you've never done that, I'm going to encourage you as a listener to do so. It is fascinating when you start looking through and you trace these different ideas of how you would partner together for mm -hmm. the sake of the gospel as local churches. You've got human resources right. that are shared, sent from one place to the other. These teams start to develop made up of people from different churches. These uh, The sharing of money, the collections mm -hmm. that are taken up for Jerusalem. So these churches are sharing finances in such a way that it helps one another. Uh, the prayer right. sharing that's going on. There's all these different ways that these churches are just and it's assumed in Scripture that this is what it means for us to be a part of this task together. Even though we're all these local churches, we have a common mission. And as part of that common mission, we're going to cooperate together across a whole spectrum of different things in order to, to do that. That's right. The trajectory of the Bible is cooperation in missions. Now, what we're not making the case for here is that the way we do it as Southern Baptists is the biblical pattern We're for not? Doing it. We're not making that case. <laughs> We're not even making the case that ours is the only way That's to do right. this. We're making the case that, that cooperating together is the norm. It is the biblical and theological trajectory of the Bible that churches must cooperate together, partner together for the sake of the mission. So we go together. Right. Uh, and that's what the theme of this whole podcast is. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have, uh, in a sense, said at this point that the cooperation to be together on God's mission is, in fact, the the biblical requirement for local churches. That's the position you have. You have to cooperate. It's a necessity. What we're saying when it comes to the Southern Baptist Convention and the way we've structured it is that prudence has led us to do it the particular way that we do it. Uh, so I look forward, Scott, to us continuing this conversation a few more episodes forward uh, and trying to unpack more what it means for churches to lean into this. We've talked to you guys a bit at this point about the why. Where do we get from Scripture this idea? It's not just pragmatism. It's a, it's a theological and a biblical issue for us to be together for the mission. Now, what does it look like to do that uh, what are the hows, so to speak? And we're going to try to take some time to move forward into that as we, we approach this issue. I'm going to encourage you all, uh, as you're following along with us on The Scent Life, to consider the other podcasts that are talking about some of these same issues here at Southeast. We've got the Pastor Matters. We've got uh, Christ and Culture. And, and we want you to lean into looking at those. Go ahead and subscribe to those if you're not listening to them as well. Give us a like. Give us a su subscribe as well. You can follow us on all the regular social media channels. We look forward to having you guys again with us next week. <laughs>